evidence and answers. Who is Adam? A new book by premier Christian scholar Dr. William Lane Craig in the quest of historical Adam has created quite a discussion in the Christian world. His conclusions are fascinating, but also controversial. What is at the center of this controversy? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and his guest, Dr. Fazal Rana, began their critique of Dr. Craig's book and are discussing his conclusion on the identity of the historical Adam. Today, they will continue this fascinating interview. Now, on to part two. Scripture clearly teaches that Adam and Eve are real historical individuals based on his analysis of not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and particularly the writings of of the Apostle Paul in Romans, for example, where Paul really believes that there was a real historical person, you know, named Adam, who is responsible for the problems that we all have as human beings, our, our ultimate separation from God, which Jesus, as the second Adam, essentially undoes through his work on the cross, where he brings about a reconciliation to overcome the consequence of Adam's rebellion. And so Craig is arguing for the inerrancy of Scripture, and what he's doing with his approach is to argue that to maintain inerrancy in light of an evolutionary history for humanity, you have to look at Genesis 1 through 11 as something other than a literal historical account by treating it as a as mytho history, as identifying its genre as mytho history. You now are preserving the inerrancy of Scripture. Yes, and some of the things he points out, he makes a good case that there seem to be some inconsistencies in Genesis. You've got the plants, but there's no sun and things like that. Are there answers to some of these apparent, what appear to be inconsistencies in Genesis? Yes, you know, I think there are. So, for example, one of the inconsistencies that he spends a bit of time on is this idea that in Genesis 1, God is presented as this transcendent creator that brought everything that we see into existence. And then in Genesis 2, we see God being presented in anthropomorphic terms, where he is taking on the form of a human being, so to speak, that he's humanized, that he's anthropomorphized. And Craig argues, well, that's a depiction of God that is commonplace in the ancient Near Eastern, or at least a a depiction of gods, because the ancient Near Eastern creation myths are polytheistic, and Genesis 1 through 11 is clearly monotheistic. But they argued that anthropomorphic presentation of God is similar to the ancient Near Eastern, you know, creation accounts. And so he argues right there, God is being presented in very different terms. And his argument would be, even the person that writing this would recognize this inconsistency. And if it was a historical account, then you would not present things that way. But if it's a mythical account, what's the big deal? What's the concern? You know, and so that would be one example that Bill Craig spends quite a bit of time on. Now, of course, in Genesis 18, we also see God being presented in an anthropomorphic sense, and nobody denies that that portion of Scripture is historical, or that it's somehow presenting God in an inconsistent way. And there have been biblical scholars and Christian apologists who've addressed that apparent inconsistency by pointing out 
that Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1 is functioning very differently than Genesis 2 in terms of the, the creation passage in the creation account, where Genesis 1 is essentially presenting us with a divine natural history where God is presented to us as a transcendent creator, emphasizing kind of God in philosophical terms. And, and the word for God used there is Elohim. In Genesis 2, the word for God that's used is Yahweh, emphasizing God's personal nature and his personal relationship with Adam. And so, in other words, it's not truly an inconsistency, but it's presenting different facets of, of God's nature and God's character, emphasizing them in service to what's being communicated in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 regarding God's role as creator. So that's an example of an inconsistency that other scholars have essentially resolved that Craig uh, seemingly dismisses in his analysis. Also, Craig talks about there are fantastical elements in Genesis 1 through 11. You know, a talking serpent, two trees in a garden, the lifespan where they're living hundreds of years. You know, are there answers to these what seem to be supernatural or fantastic elements there in the early chapters of Genesis? Yeah, you know, by delineating those particular features of Genesis 1 through 11 as being, again, fantastical elements, what Craig is doing is, in my view, is coming dangerously close to stripping that portion of Scripture of its supernatural content. And there are scholars like, you know, my, my colleague and friend Hugh Ross, who in his book, Navigating Genesis, shows how these so-called fantastical elements could actually be understood in such a way that they, that they are actually scientifically credible. So let's take long lifespans as an example. I think those long lifespans in Genesis 5 and 11 are real to be understood as being literally true, as being this was the, the actual lifespan of humanity. And of course, that seems to be a, a bit absurd, but yet we are now looking at biomedical advances in the biology of aging in which scientists have actually been able to not only stop the aging process, but reverse the aging process in some small-scale clinical studies where the participants of those studies who receive different treatments actually at the end of those treatments are biologically two years younger than their actual chronological age because they're bio biological markers that that essentially reflect our age. And so, you know, we are on the cusp of having potentially breakthroughs in treating aging as a disease, which is a bizarre concept, uh, where people arguing that if aging is thought to be like a disease, that we can not only stop aging from happening, that we can cure people of aging. And now there's discussion, serious discussion, among some biogerontologists of extending human life expectancy in the near future to several hundreds of years, maybe even to pushing a thousand years or so. And if this is actually possible through really subtle manipulations of our biochemistry, through drug treatments and other types of regimes, is it not possible that God could have created human beings to actually live hundreds of years? And that, as we see in Genesis 6 through nine, that God stepped in and intervened and shortened our life expectancy because of our, the wickedness of the human heart, and that the life expectancy we see today is a result of God stepping in again and responding to our rebellion, responding to our wickedness. As Genesis 6 says, the only thought in the heart of every person was only evil all the time, right? And so it's a way to 
remedy that, God shortens life expectancy to curtail that spread of evil. So you could see that as a divine mercy. But the larger point here is that there is work happening in the biology of aging that suddenly makes those long lifespans in Genesis 5 and 11 seem to be scientifically credible. They're no longer, or this idea of a talking snake, that's something that skeptics will raise all the time in my experience. That's something they love to bring to bear. Old Testament scholar Michael Heisner points out that the, the Hebrew word that's translated as snake or serpent, and I, off the top of my head, don't remember the word in, in the original Hebrew, but it can be, that word can be used as a noun, a verb, or as an adjective. And if it's used as a noun, it does indeed translate as serpent. But if it's used as a verb, it means, it means one who divines. It's referring to divination. And if it's used as an adjective, it means shiny. And so when you put it together, what it's essentially communicating is that this serpent is most likely Lucifer that makes an appearance in the Garden of Eden. That appearance is serpentine in nature, but that it's a real appearance of Satan in the Garden tempting Eve and tempting Adam is, you know, indirectly. And so again, by calling this a fantastical element that you know, renders Genesis 1 through 11 as mythical, really strips Genesis, that passage of scripture of its supernatural content. And the idea that there really was uh, Satan who tempted humanity, and as a result of that, coaxed us into rebelling against God, and as a result, introducing moral evil into the world. So, you know, Craig is comfortable with the idea that human beings, again, that Adam and Eve introduced moral evil into the world that infects all of humanity as a result of that, but yet it seems to be uncomfortable with the, the biblical account that is describing how, how that moral evil was introduced into the creation. Yeah, I think you got a lot of people really intrigued by about how we successful treatments to stop aging and uh, things. I think uh, we're going to get a lot of phone calls on that when this show is done. Oh, yeah. That, but that's another show, I tell you. Well, the main question then here is, who does Bill Craig identify as Adam? Yeah, well, Bill Craig, again, is viewing the origin of humanity in evolutionary terms. And so he argues that when you do a scientific analysis of that question, who was Adam? Because his view is that if Genesis 1 through 11 is mythical or a mytho history, then the, the biblical text really isn't capable of giving us an answer to that question. And so he's argues that science is going to give us the appropriate insight. And so he argues that Adam most likely was a member of a group of hominins known as Homo heidelbergensis, uh, which is a a creature that would have existed somewhere between 750,000 and about a million years ago. And that heidelbergensis in evolutionary terms is considered by some anthropologists to be the evolutionary ancestor that gave rise to not only modern humans, but also to Neanderthals, where Neanderthals and modern humans are located on two separate evolutionary branches. So that's who uh, Craig argues is Adam. Adam was a Homo heidelbergensis, where God, he's somewhat vague about this, but proposes one scenario in which this may have happened, where God is stepping in and selecting Adam and Eve from 
this group of hominins and then is both biologically and spiritually refurbishing them to create the very first quote-unquote human beings that then outcompeted the other existing Homo heidelbergensis specimen or, or members of that species, uh, supplanting them. And then that group is giving rise to, again, two separate evolutionary branches, modern humans and Neanderthals. Yes. Now, you know, one of the criticisms that I have been hearing regarding Craig's work is that because he takes this more evolutionary model that he's going into the arena of theistic evolution. Is Craig, in your assessment here, walking into that arena of becoming a theistic evolutionist? Yeah, the short answer is that the model that he presents is very clearly a theistic evolutionary model. Now, does he personally hold to theistic evolution? That's a question that I can't answer because some people have have argued that what he's presenting here in his book is a possible way of reconciling an evolutionary origin of humanity with the biblical account of human origins, and that he may actually not actually embrace the very model that he's presenting. So, but apart from really knowing what exactly the position is that Craig holds to, to me, the model that he is presenting in the book is indeed a theistic evolutionary model. It thoroughly is theistic evolutionary. Yeah, you know, that's what kind of puzzled me because I have seen Craig debate atheists and show the flaws of Darwin's evolutionary theory and present some of the most powerful arguments for intelligent design. So that's what has me a little bit confused here. I'm anxious to talk to him about this uh, someday, but uh, that's where it had me a little confused here. Is he having the same uh, response or do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, there, it is a bit enigmatic. And in some respects, the ideas that Craig are, are presenting in this book are really, to some degree, kind of radical ideas. And so I admire his courage and his boldness for, to present you know, these ideas, to argue for them. But at the same time, it just really seems out of step with what I've seen in the past with regard to Bill Craig's work in Christian apologetics. So I share that, that confusion with you, Pat. But again, I've heard some people argue that what Craig is doing in the book is really presenting kind of a, a minimalistic apologetic with the idea that if indeed you just grant an evolutionary origin of humanity, that you can actually, in that framework, preserve a historical atom by viewing Genesis 1 through 11 as mytho-history, but you are now driven to the point where the only way that works is to have Adam being, again, a member of Homo heidelbergensis. And, you know, so to me, I find that very to be uncomfortable because I think when you look at the Genesis 1 through 11 account, I find it hard to believe that the author of that passage of Scripture, which I think was Moses, would have had any concept of Homo heidelbergensis or Neanderthals. Most certainly, he would be thinking of Adam and Eve as being like us, modern humans, anatomically and behaviorally modern humans. Now, those concepts would not have existed in Moses' times, but he would have most certainly thought of Adam and Eve as being exactly like us. And so to me, I think, you know, to appeal to Homo heidelbergensis as the source of Adam and Eve to me, is something I find to be 
very uncomfortable. Yes. So Craig views Neanderthals and Homo heidelbergensis as humans, and you would disagree with that. But why does Craig believe these hominins are humans? Yeah, well, again, what Craig does is, is argues that in order to locate Adam in evolutionary history, we must rely on science. And so the first thing that he does, which you know I think is the right maneuver, and that is to ask the question, well, what do you mean exactly by human? And so Craig argues that any creature that has anatomical similarities to us should at least be in consideration for being in the category of human. And of course, that would include hominins that you know, precede our appearance on Earth that we know of from the fossil record. But one of the problems I have is, what do you actually mean by anatomical similarity? Because you could actually argue that that similarity could extend to include all the members of primates, including the great apes, for example, right? And so, you know, that's a, a bit of ambiguity. And then Craig argues that there are four criteria for what constitutes being human. That would be the capacity for abstract thinking, uh, what's called planning depth, technological and economic innovativeness, and then last, the capacity for symbolism, the ability to represent the world in symbols and communicate through the use of symbols, like in language or music or in art. And so those are the, the four criteria that he has. And then when he, he argues that when you look at the archaeological record, it's very clear, according to Craig, that Neanderthals possessed all four of those qualities, just like we do as, as modern humans. And therefore, Neanderthals must also be human. They must also be image bearers. And if they are, then it means in evolutionary terms, that the creatures that they descend from must also be image bearers, which would be Homo heidelbergensis. And so that's, in a, in a nutshell, how Craig is making that argument. Yes. Now, in your book, Who Was Adam?, you don't hold that Neanderthals or Homo heidelbergensis are human. So you take another view. Why do you view them as being not human or even pre, uh, our pre-human ancestors? Yeah, and one of the things that I think is really important, and this will be hopefully not too lengthy of an answer, is that there's some remarkable advances that are happening in evolutionary anthropology, where people who historically working in that field would have argued that human beings only differ in degree, not kind, from other creatures, that all we are is just essentially a little bit more of the same with respect to those ancestors that precede us in evolutionary terms, that view has dominated evolutionary anthropology for 150 years, that we're only different in degree, not kind. And lo and behold, today, there's a growing number of anthropologists who are deeply steeped in the evolutionary framework who are actually arguing that human beings actually different in kind, not different in degree, that we are fundamentally different. And they argue that what makes us fundamentally different is our ability to represent the world with symbols, uh, to manipulate those symbols in a, a near infinite number of ways to create these alternate scenarios, to be able to tell stories in effect, both real stories and imaginary stories. And then they also argue that we have theory of mind, that we recognize that others have minds like ours, and that we work to try to link our minds together through complex social hierarchical structures. And so you might argue that these are scientific descriptors of what we might call the image of God. 
that the argument is is that these set of qualities actually set us apart from all other creatures, from the great apes, and even from creatures like Neanderthals, where even though there are claims like that Neanderthals had language or that Neanderthals made art, for example, none of those claims actually withstand ongoing scientific investigation and characterization. For every one of those claims that's made, there are studies that essentially refute those claims. And so it really does look like human beings uniquely are one of a kind, if you will, in a way that aligns with the image of God concept that we see in Scripture. Now, there's been work on, you know, comparing human biology to Neanderthal biology, and one of the things that makes modern humans distinctive is the anatomy of our face and our skull. Our skull is globular, it's globe-shaped, and our face is flat and our chin is retracted. And what this does is it causes our parietal lobe to expand. And the parietal lobe is part of the brain that is critical for language and for mathematical treatment of, for mathematics. Neanderthals, even though their brain was maybe even slightly larger than our brain, had an elongated skull and a face that, and a chin that projected outward. And as a result of that, their parietal lobe is underdeveloped. And there are anthropologists who believe on that basis of that difference that Neanderthals did not have the capacity for language or for symbolic expression in a broad sense, that they were cognitively inferior to us. There are genetic studies. We have the full Neanderthal genome available to us. And by comparing the human genome and the Neanderthal genome, we actually identify differences in genes that play a role in neurological development or implicated in neuropsychiatric disorders, suggesting again from a genetic standpoint that we are different from Neanderthals in a way that is consistent with humans having you know, significant cognitive capacities beyond what Neanderthals possess, which I would argue allows for the image of God to be expressed in humans. On top of that, to me, what I find as being the kicker in terms of evidence for our exceptional nature is the trajectory of our technology. You know, when human beings appear on Earth, our technology is relatively primitive. Uh, and then in very short order, we developed the technology to be able to put human beings on the moon. Neanderthals were on Earth longer than we've been on Earth, and their technology was static. It, never, it didn't show any kind of progression whatsoever. And there are anthropologists who have pointed out there's got to be something that accounts for that difference. And they argue that that something is our ability for symbolism and our ability to produce open-ended languages and means of communication based on symbolism. That because we have that, our technology takes this exponential growth. Because Neanderthals lack that, their technology remains static. And so to me, I think there's some very good scientific reasons to see human beings as distinct from Neanderthals, and as a consequence, also Homo heidelbergensis, and in a way that is consistent with Scripture teaches, that we are uniquely made in God's image, that we stand apart from all other creatures, that, that we are truly the crown of creation. Right. So to get this evolutionary timeline correct, evolutionists are saying heidelbergensis precedes Neanderthals. Is that correct? That's right. So Heidelbergensis presumably existed in an evolutionary timescale between 
750 and about 1,000 and about a million years ago. And the thought is that the branches that gave rise to Neanderthals and modern humans diverged from each other, oh, in the neighborhood of approximately 500,000 to 600,000 years ago, where there are now these two separate evolutionary branches. And so, you know, Neanderthals technically are not our evolutionary ancestor, but really represent a, a side branch, an evolutionary side branch, you know, in the evolutionary scheme. Our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you are interested in having Pat speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Zucaran.